In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 5, one of the most obvious things I could say about it is that there are 11 chapters of the book of Hebrews preceding this. And the reason why I mention that is because what we're going to take a look at this morning is very exhortive, very encouraging in nature. In other words, the writer of the Hebrews is very much going to instruct us as to our actions in the Christian life and following after Jesus. And that's important and that's what we need. But we need to be reminded that as we look at the book of Hebrews this morning and we take out the section of verses that we're going to discuss and take a good look at. There's a sense in which this is not the way that the original recipients of the letter would have received it. The original recipients of the letter would have pretty much heard the entire letter read at one setting. And they're at a, at a normal gathering of the believers. And so they would have heard the section that we're going to go through this morning. But they would have heard it in the context immediately of everything that's gone before. In other words, they would have heard that all this very practical instruction on how to live would come after God has told us very plainly all that he has given us in Jesus Christ. In other words, they would have understood that it comes in the context of this idea of the superiority of Jesus and the greatness of the new covenant. And that under the new covenant, we have this new relationship with God that's marked by a complete forgiveness, by an inner transformation, by the outpouring of the spirit. And they would realize that all of this is real in my life. And that's what enables me to live for God. I don't want to give you this morning just sort of some lecture of a big to-do list in your Christian life, even though we're going to talk to you very frankly about things that you and I must do as believers. But we understand that whatever God calls us to do, it's because he's done a prior work in our life in and through what Jesus did on the cross. So with that in mind, I think we set our head in the right perspective to just listen to what the writer of the Hebrews tells us, sort of as a coach encouraging a team at halftime, so to speak. Let's take a look here, beginning at verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. You see, he's speaking to the uh, Christians from a Jewish background there in the first century. Some of these Christians were very discouraged. As a matter of fact, they were so discouraged that they felt like giving up on their Christian life, or at least drawing back into some vague, unidentifiable, really not, no distinctive sort of Christian living. And in this tendency to give up or to draw back, he says, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to continue on. And I want to give you reasons to be encouraged. And one of the great reasons he wanted them to be encouraged was because they should regard whatever difficulty, whatever suffering they're going through. It doesn't necessarily mean at all that God is displeased with you, that he's angry with you. Perhaps he's training you. Perhaps he's to use the figure there in verses five and six. He's chastening. You see, look at verse five. He says, you have forgotten these things. You have forgotten that God deals with us as a loving parent would deal with the child. And sometimes that involves correction and training. You've forgotten all about that. 
So you need to remember that dynamic between your relationship with God and the way that he works in your life. Because verse 5 says, you've forgotten this, that God speaks to you as sons. And I'll throw in daughters. I don't think I'm implying too much in the text. To say that God regards us as children. And he quotes here, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, that reminds us that God's chastening or chaining work in our life should never be taken as a sign of his rejection. Instead... It's sort of a training tool in our life. Therefore, he says there in verse 5, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. You see, chastening is God's loving tool of training and correction, and we should receive it gratefully. This idea of chastening really has two aspects. One of them is sort of a negative aspect. God needs to work in your life and get you to stop doing something. And so he'll allow correction. If I could use the figure, and I hope this doesn't set anybody's teeth on edge, so to speak. I hope if it doesn't sound offensive, but I I think you'll get what I'm saying. It is somewhat like a spanking from your heavenly father. Now, I I wouldn't say it's, I take pains, it's a spanking administered beautifully and properly and legitimately. But it's something that makes you say, no, don't do that. And I'm going to chasten you in that way. But that's not the only aspect or idea behind this word for chastening. It also has within it the idea of training. You see, the picture is not only of a parent training through maybe a little bit of discipline, but it also very much has the idea of sort of a coach or, well, let's use this figure, a personal trainer working you out. There you are at the gym. Personal trainers working you. And, you know, you may like that personal trainer, but at times you hate them, do you not? Because they push you, not necessarily in a negative way, but in a very positive way. They're pushing you to train you. It may not seem pleasant at the moment, but the effect is very good. Now, I need to say this a couple of things. First of all, when we have this idea, this concept of God chastening in the life of the believer, we understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, as his sons and daughters, Not only do we give him the permission to tell us what to do. By the way, just that. That's a revolutionary idea in the world today, isn't it? The idea that God should tell us what to do. That a functioning, rational human being should do something. Not because it feels good. Not because there's an immediate reward. Not because they want to do it. But because God tells them to do it. That's a very foreign idea in the culture. The idea that a human being should stop doing something because God's telling them to stop doing it. Again, that's a very foreign idea to the culture. But we, as followers of Jesus, we say we're going to take our agenda from a different page. We're just not going to swim in the same direction as the culture. We're going to say, no, God, you have the right to tell me what to do and not to do. But then there's another aspect to this. The idea of chastening tells us that not only does God have the right to tell us what to do, But he has the right to actively intervene in my life to get me to do what's right and to stop me from doing what's wrong. Does that frighten you? That God has this right. God has this ability. Now, it would only frighten you if you had a distorted view of God as your father. And I pray that nobody does. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Matter of fact, let's just keep going on. Verse 7 here, he says, If you endure chastening... God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? 
But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You see, this idea that we understand that God has the right and that it's even good for him to actively intervene in my life, to train me in the directions. doesn't mean that God's angry at me. doesn't mean that he hates me. It does not mean, to use a figure, that God is making me pay for my sins. Ladies and gentlemen, let me be very clear on something. All the payment for your sin and my sin was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. All of it. All the wrath that your sin and my sin deserved, it was poured out upon Jesus. Whatever we may have to endure as chastening or training from God, it is in no ways making us pay for our sins or making us atone for our sins. That's forever accomplished by Jesus. What this is doing is training our conduct as sons and daughters as Jesus Christ. Look at what he says there in verse seven. God deals with you as sons. A fundamental fact of the believer's relationship with God is that God is to his people as a loving, good father is to a son or a daughter. As I say those words, I immediately recognize that this might be hard for some people to grasp because there are some people who do not know by experience what a loving parent is like. It's a bad world out there, isn't it? Some of us uh, have grown up in very difficult homes. Now, I have to say I was extremely blessed to go up in a loving, good home, but I know that not everybody's had that blessing. And this is what I would tell you, that even if you do not know by experience what a loving father is like, you know by intuition what a loving father is like. You know by intuition how a loving father should care for you. And I would just pray that God would help you to understand by intuition and by his word what you have not understood by experience and that God would work this into your life because... Otherwise, you might find it too easy to regard any chastening, any correction that God does in your life. When he gives you, again, so to speak, a heavenly spanking, the immediate thing you come to is, God hates me. God's angry with me. No, quite the opposite. Look at it there in verse 8. He says, if you are without chastening, you are illegitimate and not sons. Those who consider themselves to be beyond God's correction, they don't appreciate that it is, in fact, to be a true son or a true daughter. Instead, you sort of unwillingly or unknowingly associate yourself with illegitimate children. No, as legitimate children of a loving father, we accept it when he intervenes in our life to correct our behavior or to train us to better behavior. Now, going on now to verse 9, he says this. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they, indeed, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for a prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness." You see, we should be even more submissive and more accepting of the correction and the training that our heavenly father gives us than we would be of the correction and training that a human father would give us. Look, I know I speak to many people here who are parents, but even if you're not a parent, you knew what it was like to have a parent. 
You know what it's like, the dynamic, when the child resists and resents correction from the parent. It makes for a very unpleasant home, doesn't it? And sometimes we act towards God like angry, resistant teenagers would act towards their own parents. They don't understand that there's a wisdom and a love behind the corrections. And instead, we just need to well, not be so childish in our relationship with God. I'm not saying childlike. It's a beautiful thing to be childlike in our loving acceptance of God. But somewhat childish to say, well, God, all I want is ice cream and, you know, uh, roller coaster rides from you. Instead of realizing that God has something to build in us. And in this building, chastening is necessary. It's important that God do it. And that's why he says there in verse nine, shall we not much more read readily in subjection to the father of spirits and live? We need this. We need to submit to it and especially not regard it as a mark of God's anger, but of his love and failure. Excuse me, his love and favor in our life. Now, I know that whenever you speak to a group of people, that there's all sorts of stories behind every life and every face. And I know that when you speak to a group of people, that there are some people who right now are in the midst of great difficulty. I may not know what it is, but there's great crisis or difficulty that confronts your life. You're, you're, you're very troubled by something. There is some way that you can say, ah, maybe this is God's hand of correction towards me. This is what you need to do is you need to think very deeply about this and receive whatever lesson it is that God wants to teach you in the season of correction and receive whatever kind of training he wants to do so that that good purpose of God can be accomplished. I mean, if I could use almost a silly illustration, the idea is a child that keeps wanting to touch the hot stove. And the the parent needs to keep disciplining them. Well, child, the one way to avoid keep getting the discipline is to not keep doing it. And to learn from the discipline that the Lord would come and bring into your life. That's just, well, it's so obvious when you talk about it in terms of a child. But you understand that you are God's child? And he may be trying to develop the exact same thing in your life. Look at it says in verse 10. He says, but he does this for our profit. For our good. Now, verse 11 is the last verse where he's talking about this chastening. So let's sort of wrap up the idea with this. He says this. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, trials are trials. Chastening is chastening. If it doesn't hurt us or press us, it's not really chastening. Inherent in the idea is that there's some pain or difficulty in it. Sometimes that's the only way for us to learn. And when God knows it, he will allow that into our life. There's a sense. Matter of fact, early Christians used to speak this way, not always in healthy ways, but largely in healthy ways. They would understand this. They would call the Christian to be a spiritual athlete and that we are in God's gymnasium and he's training us. And listen, you can't train somebody for excellence and endurance without pushing them. And if God, in some way, is allowing you to be pushed, if you feel you're at the stretching point or the straining point, don't give up and certainly don't regard it as God being mad at you, but rather say, yes, Lord, what do you want to teach me in this? What do you want to sink into my life 
through this process. Because I'll tell you this, look at here in verse 11. He says God's goal in this is to bring forth what he calls the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You see, that fruit is what's going to be evident in the life of the Christian. The very reason why many Christians experience one crisis after another, their life is one turmoil in continual rotation, is because they're either blind to God's chastening or they resist it. They're not trained by it. And God wants us to be trained by it so that it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You know, friends, God has a purpose in training you. He does. One of the things that you could think about in regard to this is uh, David, who later became the king of Israel when he was a little shepherd boy. Do you know that David had a couple terrible crisis experiences as a little shepherd boy? One time when he was out watching the sheep, a bear attacked the sheep. And David, I don't know how he had the resources to courage to do this. I mean, he was strong in God because even though he was a little boy, instead of running from the bear, he went up to it and he grabbed it and he killed it. He did the same thing with a lion. And it's just like absolutely amazing, a bear and a lion. Now, could you imagine David doing this? Oh, God, why could you ever allow such a terrible thing to happen to me? The bear and the lion. No, Lord, this is a disaster. I thought you loved me. If you really loved me, you wouldn't allow such terrible things to come into my life. Do you know how hard my heart was beating? I could have died in that God. But listen, God revealed his wisdom later because not long after that, when David stood before a Goliath of a man and had to fight him in one-on-one battle, he had the wisdom to say, I was trained by a battle with a bear. I was trained by a battle with a lion. And now, because of that prior training, though I didn't understand at the time, now I understand, God, you were developing me to do this kind of thing. The same principle holds true in God's training work in our life so that it would yield this peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, going on here now to verse 12, he says this, therefore, encouraging us. Look at how stirred up he is in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. I have in my my mind the image here of a coach sort of encouraging and exhorting the team there at halftime. He's trying to stir them up. Come on, guys, let's go. We got pushed around in the first half. You think that it didn't go well for us, but forget about all that. Now is the time for us to go forward and to win this game. He's trying to exhort them and encourage them. And one of the things that he encourages them with is this knowledge that the difficulty that they were going through was not a mark of his displeasure, but rather the work of God in him. That's why he can say there in verse 12, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down. He's like a coach. He's like a military officer. He's telling his fellow followers of Jesus to take courage and to be active. I've given you all kinds of reasons to be strong in the Lord. I've given you all kinds of reasons to put off discouragement. Now you must do it and rather receive strength and healing from God so that you can go forward and accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. It's a very critical moment here. And so he's fired up the team. They're ready to go out. They're ready to do God's work. And what does he tell them to do? Look at it here in verse 14. This is the work that they're supposed to do with this new flush of encouragement in their life. He says, verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness 
without which no one will see the Lord. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, that seemed kind of anticlimactic. You want to fire us up, Lord, to do what? To, to take our cities for Christ, to do what? To reach the ends of the world, to do what? By beating back injustice. And look, all those things are great, but you know where it begins? It begins by you having a right relationship with other people and with you honoring God with your life. That's what he says in verse 14. Should we review it again? Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you understand what he's telling them to do with their lives? First of all, you walk right with other people. You pursue peace with all men. Matter of fact, I love the way that he phrased it right there. He did not tell you to be at peace with all men because sometimes it doesn't depend on us, does it? But we're called to pursue it. If there's going to be a difficulty in relationship with us and any other person, we've got to do everything we can to ensure that the difficulty is on their end and not on ours because we pursued peace in every way possible. God, we care about our relationships with other people. You take this flush of encouragement and enthusiasm you have to go out and serve the Lord. And why don't you go out and get it right with people that you've wronged? Pursue peace with all people. But that's not the end of it. There's not just a horizontal element to this. There's also a vertical element to this because he also mentions in verse 14, and you saw it, it says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So you pursue peace with all people and you pursue holiness. You know, I'm very aware that when I say words, um, because look, I'm a preacher, I'm a speaker, whatever you want to call it. I mean, words are what I use. And I recognize sometimes that I'll use words and I wonder how do they sound in the ears of those I speak to? And I wouldn't be surprised if when I say the word holiness, if it has a negative association in many ears, you think holiness and you think of somebody who's very uptight, very judgmental, very unpleasant, very terrible to live with. I mean, isn't that what holiness is? No, it's not what holiness is at all. The fundamental idea of holiness is to be set apart. It's to be someone who is set apart to God, someone who belongs to him. And they don't take the cues and the values and the, 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 the emphasis from the world, from the flesh or the devil They take all of that from God himself instead. It's someone who says, I want to be like you, Lord. I want to be separated unto you. It doesn't really matter to me if something is popular or well-received in the world at large. I want to know what you think about it, God. I don't care if the government says I can or can't do it. Whatever. I want to know what you say, God, because I want to be separate unto you. I want to pursue holiness. So he says, pursue peace with all people and holiness. And then he drops that bomb in verse 14. Did you see it? Without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, a lack of holiness is a critical obstacle to a close relationship with God. We live in a day and age where I think the church at large has a low regard for holiness. We find it too easy 
to take our cues and our values from the culture at large. Instead of really thinking, God, what do you say about this? And I want to live my life for the glory and the honor of Jesus instead of just to fit in around me. You see, for somebody who's really concerned about holiness, it's okay to them if they don't fit in all around them because they know that they fit in with God. And somehow we have to get beyond this impulse that is almost a vestige in us from junior high days that just desperately wants to belong with other people and have them approve of us. And instead, while not courting the disfavor of other people, while not begging for it, instead, this is what we see and say, we say, who I am before God matters far more than the world's opinion of me. Because, friends, look at the price that you pay without holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This idea of holiness, this is something that God grows and develops in your life. It's the easiest thing in the world. Preaching on holiness is sort of like preaching on prayer. It's super easy to make everybody feel very guilty. Here's what I want to know. Do do you have a heart for holiness? And is it growing and increasing in your life? I want you to be honest before God. And I want you to think with the Lord right now as I speak these words to you. If you really don't care about holiness, can you just admit that before God? You don't have to raise your hand or stand. I'm not looking for any of that. I just want you to talk to God in the quiet place of your heart and tell him. Lord, I'm going to be honest before you. I care about a lot of things in my life. I don't really care about holiness. Okay, if that's your case, I just want you to mentally right now talk to God about it. But then I want you to add this. But Lord, I want to because I know that I should. You see, maybe you're not willing. Maybe you're not willing to really care much about holiness. That's okay. Are you willing to be made willing? Are you willing to be made willing to be made willing? I mean, you can take it as far back as you want. But let's just come to God and say, God, you're going to have to do some work on my heart. Because I sense when I see what your word says about this, somehow your word seems to care about it more than I frankly do. Transform me. Make me. Awaken in my life a desire for holiness. I, I do want to say one, one other thing before going go on to verse 15. Pursue peace with all men. That's right relationships with other people. Uh, pursue holiness. And then he says, without which no one will see the Lord. And I know how I've always understood it. And I think it's probably the proper way to understand it, that you and I aren't going to properly see God. We're not going to know him. We're, we're Perhaps he's even saying you're not going to make the heaven without those things unless relationships are right, unless you have holiness in your life. I mean, these things are the effect of a redeemed life. We don't earn salvation through those things. No, not at all. But they can be evidence of a life that's truly redeemed. Here's what I want to think about it in another term here. Not just in the sense that it's impossible to see the Lord without right relationships and holiness, but it's impossible for others to see the Lord. 
Do you want other people to see Jesus Christ in your life? Let me break you the news. It's not going to happen because you are so uber cool that they just see Jesus dripping off of you. It's going to be seen in right relationships and in holiness. That's how people are going to see the Lord in your life. That's what God wants us to consider. Let's go on. We'll finish up our time here. Verse 15, the clock ticks away and we're so grateful to have communion together this morning. I want to make sure we have time for that. Look, starting out verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." It's as if he says this, listen, we want to display to the world who God is. We want to show the world who God is through our good relationships and through our holiness. We want to display that. But there's two things that are going to disqualify you from that. Number one, you'll be disqualified from that from a root of bitterness in your life. This root of bitterness is going to make itself manifest in a fruit of bitterness. And I don't know if you've ever run across people like this. But a bitter Christian is a strange creature to behold. It's just not right. It's, it's just not proper. There should be a healing. There should be a forgiveness. There should be a coming under the grace of the Lord. And listen, for whatever reason, a person may be bitter. For whatever that is, it may be because someone really was terrible to you. Maybe you really were wronged or robbed or defrauded in some way. Let's say you have a completely legitimate purpose for your bitterness. You're not making it up out of thin air. But friend, isn't it time now for you to realize that whatever someone else did to you, you've been forgiven much more by God. And so now you can forgive. You can let go of that bitterness. If you don't, it's going to disqualify you from proclaiming to the world. You're not going to see it in, in being peaceable with all men. That's a violation of that. What about the second one, holiness? Notice it here. The second idea is he illustrates it from the life of Isaac, where he says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person. You see, we also need to get right, not only in the way that we relate to one another, and that means getting rid of all bitterness, but we also have to get right according to our own moral conduct and not be like Esau, who was a fornicator and a profane person. Now, there's another word we don't use in everyday language, do we? Fornicator. I'll tell you what a fornicator is, biblically speaking. Biblically speaking, fornication is any sexual expression, it's sex expressed outside of the covenant of marriage. Whether that be regarding premarital, extramarital, whatever else you would want to call it, it's sex outside of God's intention in marriage. That's fornication. So there's fornication and, he says, a profane person. That has the idea of somebody who's godless or rejecting God. And this is a violation of the idea of holiness. And through that, he illustrates this person, Esau. Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. 
Friends, I think that Esau is a brilliant illustration of someone who's a fornicator or a profane person. Because Esau came in from hunting one day and was desperately hungry. And his brother Jacob was making a bowl full or a pot full of lentil soup. And he was so hungry, he said, give me some lentil soup. And Jacob, being a real conniver and bad guy all in his own right, he said to him, yeah, I'll give you a lentil soup. You give me the birthright. And Esau said, yeah, sure, I can't eat the birthright, but that's some good lentil soup. Give me the lentil soup. So he sold his birthright for something right then, for some immediate gratification. Friends, isn't it a common thing for believers today? And I'm talking to believers. I'm not, this is an in-house conversation. I'm not speaking to the conduct of those who aren't followers of Jesus Christ. I'm talking to those who have given their lives to Jesus. We're called to live to a higher sexual morality. This is what God calls us to do. And, and I know the lentil soup can fill your stomach right here, right now. And it may even taste good. But look at what you sell out to get it. Look at what you deprive yourself. Nobody looks at Esau and says, good deal, Esau. We look upon him with pity and as a fool because he didn't understand what he was giving away when he filled his belly full of lentil soup. I'm sure it tasted great. It's probably the best soup he ever ate. But it still was a bad, bad trade. Friends, when God speaks to us about sexual morality... The impression that so many of us take, and the world presses this upon us, the impression we get is, it's a don't, 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 no, no, no. God looks around the world and sees if there's anybody having fun, and he says, stop that. That's kind of the idea. No. Do you see what God says? He says, don't sell yourself cheap. Don't give away that birthright for a bowl of soup. I have so much more for you if you'll obey me. If you'll listen to me, let me conclude with a couple thoughts. First of all, it's hard to preach a message like this that is so exhortive, that talks about holiness, that talks about fornication. It's hard to preach it without feeling in the air of a room the sense, I fail. I fail. Friends, don't we all come before a passage like this very humbly? and realize our failure and shortcomings before it. That's why it is so wonderful and so appropriate for us to come to the table of the Lord right here and right now and come to Jesus at the cross and all over again and say, we receive it, Lord. We receive your cleansing, your healing, your grace given to us by your work on the cross. This is what we need. This is what we receive. And this is what we want to empower us to pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We need this, Jesus. The second thing, I want you to prepare your heart for communion like this. Esau gave it all away for a lowly meal. Did he not? Lentil soup. He gave it all away for some lentil soup. Friends, right here, right now, in picture form, God wants you to get it all back through a lowly meal. The bread and the cup. There's nothing fancy. It's not artisan bread, and we're not handing out a wine list for communion. No, no, no. It's a very lowly, simple meal. But through that, God can give it to you all back again. 
Father, this is my prayer. Lord, we as a congregation, we open up our hearts before your word. And Lord, you do some deep and sometimes uh, severe work upon us. God, I pray for hearts all across this room that are not willing to pursue holiness, that are not willing to pursue peace with all men. And I pray that you would make them willing to be made willing. And I pray that you would do a work in your people so that the whole world could see who Jesus is. Help us now, Lord, as we put our focus upon our Savior, acknowledging how broken we are in the face of your word, but realizing that you are more than enough, that Jesus, you have and you can build new life within us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity to put our eyes on Jesus and the great work that he did for us on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name.